Welcome to Arise, the Honest Man's Podcast, with myself, Karun Avatar, Jai Jagannath, Dave Madhava, and Harvey Vilas. What is this about? Real men arising to end the silence around us about the chains that bind us, to dispel the darkness of illusion with luminous spiritual technologies, to finally become the hero within us all. And uh, I just want to say that we were we were just informed by a very benevolent and well-wishing grammar Nazi that uh, the use of the word <laughs> the the use of the word arising isn't isn't actually completely correct. But then Jajagna just made like an executive decision that it's it's actually a poetic uh, use of the word. So we decided to stick with it. So just for all of you like well-wishing grammar Nazis out there, we're just letting you know that this is a conscious decision. <laughs> <laughs> all right, yeah. nice. We have a really nice topic. To be honest with you, I didn't really know how to structure my questions around it. And I didn't really even know how to think about it. So I'm very interested to see how this discussion is going to unfold. But the topic is re rediscovering manhood and what was the rest of it? In the, gen <laughs> in the age of gender fluidity. The, okay, the reason I can't remember is because my original title was rediscovering <laughs> manhood and the gender emporium. But that comes off as a little bit, um, what was the word used? Too poetic. No. <laughs> Yo, what was, David, when you used? <laughs> <laughs> David, when you used that particular word, I actually had to look it up. I'd never heard it before. What did you say again? It's incendiary. I, th mm. I think when I heard it, right, there's, there's people who don't struggle with that, that want to struggle with that, and so they create some struggle for themselves. And, and there's a lot of that going around. But then there are people who actually struggle with that. It's a real, like, issue for them. And sure. so to not like relativize or, or dismiss that struggle that's genuine, I thought better to go with a little more neutral word than just like everybody gets to shop and it's it's such a choice for everyone. Yeah, I guess when I was, I wasn't thinking of transgenderism specifically when I used the word gender emporium, I was thinking more of, there's this whole like there are 93 genders or there's like, a, like maybe not 93, but it's like a huge number. Yeah, no, I remember. And so I was thinking of that and like it has, like outside of the realm of a person's mind, you can't know or recognize what that gender is like demi queer or they have all these terms for them now. Mm. So when I, when I thought of the word gender emporium, I was kind of thinking of that and not thinking specifically of transgenderism, which we might somehow touch on today also. But let's get into it. I do have a first question. I thought I'll kick it off like I like to kick it off with a first of a, a philosophical question of sorts to lean into the subject matter before we get into a more subjective, let's say, understanding of it. But my first question here is this, um, what is man? <laughs> and when I say that, what is man as a category and not just a description of man in terms of the qualities that men are expected to imbibe? L let me unpack that a little bit more. I think generally when people try to describe what it is to be a man, they usually think of it in terms of different male archetypes. Like a man is a warrior or a man is a, you know, Brahmin archetype, for example, or warrior archetype or artist archetype, or a man might be toxic, you know, or a man might be nervous. Like toxic masculinity is a very popular subject matter in the social political landscape. But if you have to understand 
a toxic man, you have to know what is man. You have to know what is toxic. Mm. Otherwise, the word toxic man doesn't make any sense. Like if I had no context of what the word man meant, if I heard the word toxic man, then I couldn't understand what you were talking about. So in order to even talk about something like toxic masculinity, for example, you would have to have a very clear understanding of what man is first. And it seems to me in the, the sort of postmodern era that we seem to be, we're, we're a part of, man itself seems to be very much deconstructed. And so even when, even like now when I hear people talking about toxic masculinity, I'm like, what exactly are you even talking about? Because the word man itself has been deconstructed on a social level, it appears at least to me, that is the case that I don't even know what you're really talking about. So I thought that would be an interesting place to start. Like what is man as a category? Before we get into talking about the different types of men that exist within that category, like, you know, in terms of race or sexuality or in terms of attributes, what is man as a category? And I guess, I mean, if you can speak on it in terms of whatever you understand from scripture, but I'm also, it's a subjective question also, like, how do you understand man as a category and how does that impact you subjectively as an individual? That's my first question. I think it's a good one. I'm I'm actually very proud of that question because that was the only one I could really come up with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's it just what's immediately coming up for me is just that I don't think I've ever actually consciously thought about what it is that objectively defines man as a category when and and not immediately start thinking about what is the what are the qualities of man. So it is a, it's a very challenging question. And today, I just want to say that I particularly want to, um, uh, you know, pick David Madhavan and Harry Velas's brains on the subject matter. Um, so if any of you guys have, have, a, have something that comes up immediately, please do share with us. Well, Devin Madhava has been a man much longer than I am. So <laughs> Are you calling me old, Prabhu? I don't know. <laughs> Experienced. Yeah. I, it's, it's funny. Um, in, in asking myself this question, I'm glad you asked it, Jai, but like all week since you guys have invited me into the conversation, I've been asking myself this. I'm like, I don't know. You know, like there's, we have these like man up. What, what does that, okay what is it, it's a sense of responsibility and when i ask myself you know there's this led zeppelin song in the days of my youth i was told what it means to be a man and now i've reached that age i try to do all these things the best i can but no matter how i try i find myself to the same old jam this led zeppelin song so there are these archetypes of being a man as being able to provide to take care to protect kind of a, an emblem of strength and responsibility but that gets played out in modern society as just exploiting until you get caught, then being shamed when you do, and not having any real framework to execute those kind of expectations other than to exploit, to lord it over, to abuse, to like unduly exert power and influence. And so most men, including myself, uh, up until I would say recently, or I've in the last two years kind of had a healthier shift most men, I think, inside feel very embarrassed about what they have to do to look like a man. Mm. Mm. 
could you could you perhaps elaborate slightly on why would the feeling of embarrassment come up in engaging in particular things that would make one more definitively a man since manly things tend to generally you know kind of typically be courageous and brave and 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 out there and determined so where would that embarrassment arise i like to pause before we get into that that's a very good question i wrote it down too actually incidentally but this is why i asked my question because when we use words like courageous strong um provider even these are words that can just as easily be used in relationship to women and especially in the postmodern era these words are definitely thought of in relationship to women they're not uniquely man qualities and therefore if you try to describe men only in terms of these qualities you're definitely going to get at best an impasse between like well why is that uniquely male like they're strong women they're courageous women so why are you trying to um, esteem those as specifically male qualities and that's why i wanted to make the distinction between understanding man as a category distinct from just qualifying him with the various qualities otherwise you get into this impasse like courage and strength etc these are qualities and anyone can actually have those qualities and they may manifest uniquely in men versus with women for example but their qualities distinct from them so what is man that's where I, that's why i'm really trying to zoom in on that I don't know if I'm coming out clearly here. And maybe the answer is like Dave Monaghan said, I don't really know because I was basically coming to that conclusion too. But um, I wanted to make it clear that there is a distinction there. Otherwise, you're going to get into this conflict when you're like, well, a man is one who is, you know, he's courageous in the face of dot, dot, dot. Well, any woman can do that too. So that doesn't seem like a very satisfying sort of answer. All right. Hari Vilas, you got something on this. Okay. Um I think that does it make sense what I'm saying? I'm not trying to no, make sense. It makes sense. Okay. I mean, I think it's definitely clear that we are living in a postmodern world because we have to ask this question. <laughs> um, I think the first thing to understand when we start speaking about masculinity or femininity is that ultimately it does have a. Uh, we get lost because uh, the complexities arise in our social organization nowadays. It's our so it's our social the social aspect of being a man or a woman that is completely unclear, and therefore it's very confusing. But we have to understand that uh, the role of masculinity is to a certain extent um, assigned by a culture. It's a fact. You know, different men have different responsibilities in different eras and different times, and as times are changing, the the sort of specific form that masculinity takes also change. But I think. Um, it's very important to start with a very simple definition is that um, when two people have sex, then one gets pregnant and the other one doesn't. And the one that doesn't get pregnant is the man. So you, know, you, start, you, have to start with, you, know, you have to start with that basis because it is really an organic basis because the rest of the social things that come, the rest of the social attributes and responsibilities and characteristics and qualities that have to be developed are designed keeping in mind that basic organic fact. It's like if they ask Robert, why is a woman not that? Robert says, because if you have sex, you get pregnant and the other one doesn't. And it's like that has massive, massive ramifications on your social duties, how mm. society is supposed to. It's like, you know, so let's start with something very basic and to see well, how, what does that mean? It means two people have sex, one gets pregnant, the other one doesn't. Okay, now who's going to do what? 
and you know what, what how are we going to work with that because that is going to uh, even in the average person's life that's going to occupy at least like 50 to 60 to 70 percent of your life is going to deal with the reality of sex and children so i mean that that really is quite important and uh, then we can say okay how to deal with it that's another question but uh, that's one simple way to start off with I love that answer. That was the answer that I, the only answer I actually could come to. <laughs> I, I didn't, I wouldn't have expressed it the way that you did in terms of the pregnancy, which is a really good twist to me. <laughs> One that I can appreciate. I don't know if that's toxic or not, but I do appreciate that. Um, what I get, what I was, got from my own meditation on it is that fundamentally the idea of man and woman was tied to the gross physical body. Whereas when we think about the subject matter of man and womanhood today in the postmodern era, it's tied largely to the subtle body. And, and as you say, that's the subtle body is like such an interesting body because it can really be broken down and reconstructed in all sorts of fascinating ways, even while you're within the gross physical body. So it seems like the, the term man and woman on the most basic level especially when you're like dealing with like sacred texts and so on was had its link to the gross physical body more than to the subtle body, which is how we normally tend to think about it today. And so if you were a man is because you had the male gross body. And if you were a woman is because you had the woman gross body. And then of course, yeah. as you were mentioning with sex life, then one gets pregnant, the other doesn't. And that's going to have a lot of ramifications on how you organize your society. But on a most fundamental level, it, it actually relates to the gross physical body itself. Yeah. And it seems like, yeah. Uh, yeah, okay, you have something on that. I don't want to say Yeah, just, just, no, it's exactly because, and many, we have to understand, even then, many of the subtle characteristics one could say, because you see, there is no real distinction between gross and subtle. It's like the two things fit like a glove into a hand. Right. So we know, we know for a fact, even by modern scientific understanding, that how much of your temperament and your character traits are mediated by your hormonal discharges in your body. So the, the cross distinction between the human, between the masculine body and the feminine body has massive consequences. Also, for the subtle characteristics, the quality trait is a fact. Like men are statistically, I mean, it is, it's very clear, statistically much more aggressive and assertive than the average woman. And women are statistically much more agreeable than the average man. Obviously, there's always exceptions. Right. But in the postmodern world, we worship the exception uh, in one sense. In the social sciences, we worship the exception. But then in every single of the hard sciences, everything is run by statistics because we see that statistics work if you want to, if you want to organize a bigger whole. So, yeah, that, that's a very nice point. The, gro the gross in, it is what's the traditional distinction. Um, and it does really make sense because it has also an influence on the subtle. And you cannot really separate the subtle body, the subtle personality from the gross body. The two things are going to have an effect on one another. Why? Let's, let's take the time to define postmodern just because I think it's going to come out a lot in the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Please. I actually, to be honest with you, I don't even really know what that means. I mean, I've looked it up a few times on Google, like a responsible millennial. But... Um, yeah, so I would, I'll, then I, I'll just, you guys, um, probably many of our viewers also have seen the, the Campbell soup can being turned into artwork. And this idea that like, or uh, just a few weeks ago, I saw that some guy took a pair of sunglasses 
and put it in the corner of a museum. I saw that. And, and there was like, and, and just put a little barricade around it. And there was tons of people coming over and taking pictures and selfies with the sunglasses on the floor. So this kind of relativization, there's no truth in what is art, what is man, what is woman, what is right, what is wrong. It's just kind of whatever my own experience dictates as being satisfying. That's what is the truth. That's kind of the circumstance of postmodernism that we find ourselves in. Yeah, just as a Personal. Um, sorry, yeah. I just wanted to say just for those people out there who are like really geeks and like really into this sort of stuff, that was probably an oversimplification for you. But <laughs> they, I think that's the general idea, like the general sense that I get that I've gotten from the few times that I've Googled postmodernism and read articles and Wikipedia and all that. Yeah. There's a strong there's a strong element of deconstruction of like social norms, of the sense of what is like, you're giving an example of art or music, there's a deconstruction of that. And that it's really relative to individuals or the, you know, the, the subjective world and there's no objective sort of reality around it. So that's probably, again, an oversimplification, but that's more or less what we're gonna be working with here on this episode. So <laughs> forgive us our offenses, if any, but that's where, that's kind of the sense that it looks like we have. All right, Corona, sorry to cut you off. Um, you were about to jump in. No, no, no. I just I, I just I just wanted to add super briefly that I, I've always liked to define postmodernism as just like a a complete overemphasis of personal subjectivity to the extent mm -hmm. where you know objective truth. So I just wanted to kind of add that little tail onto what Davis said. Right. Um, just the easiest yes, way. Yes, and then and then that. also hmm? uh, sorry, the, Harry. The, the simplest way to understand the idea of postmodernity is this also is it, it's a label that is used for schools philosophy or even in music or whatever but it's easy is understood just as a historical definition of a historical period so right the, sure. the western the western world um had its christian era in which the church dogma determined what is truth and then you ended into the modern era around the 1600s wherein uh, rational rationality was then defined as the measure for truth yeah. but then the experiment to, under, to get certainty on the, purely on the basis of reason has failed. And then we entered into the postmodern era where people have abandoned the search for certainty and objective truth. And now that's exactly, so everything has become, as you said, more, just the objectivity has become abandoned as a value because we can't reach it. We can't, we're not into dogma or reveal truth. We mm. see that, uh, that um, rationality also can't actually give us any specific um, certainty. So therefore we, we search for alternative means to, uh, searching for alternative to certainty which means much more subjectivity and playing around with um, all kinds of concepts and come up to question because you cannot it cannot be grounded um you know even gender cannot be grounded in anything so therefore we, we just open it up for all kind of uh, differentiation so it is that's most simply what it really means nice thank so, you so just coming back to this idea then that i think what we're working with now so far is that man means you got the male body, your <laughs> physical body, largely. And the subtle body is, is necessarily connected to that body. And it kind of configures itself according to the body. I mean, we're not going to get overly philosophical here because we're not trying to put people to sleep. But when you think about like Sankhya metaphysics, for example, the ego element and the ego element of nature is, was responsible for identity which is what we're talking about here. The ego element has the ability to contract and expand in all sorts of interesting and funny ways. 
And so when you when the soul inside that ego element gets the body of, let's say, an ant, then the ego element contracts to fit within the confines of the ant body. And when it gets a bigger body, say like the body of a mammal or a human being, then the ego element expands to fit the confines of that new body. So there's definitely a relationship between the ego element of identity and the gross physical body that you get. And so I guess this is a, maybe the next question coming from a basic understanding. I don't know if there are any comments yet here for this, but coming from the basic understanding that um, man means the gross physical body, then how does the ego element or man as identity relate to that point? That's kind of my second question. I don't have my questions prepared today, so there, it's a little bit free flowing, but um, I think it's, I'm liking with the direction overall. <laughs> is it, was my question not clear? Should I? Uh, not, not exactly. Just maybe rephrase it for a moment. Yeah. Well, man, is, man means you got the the male body. That's what yeah. it means. That's where we're at. That's where we're at so far sure. in this conversation. But the ego element necessarily expands or contracts according to the gross physical body that it gets. Mm. And so now, when you're talking about man, you have to also talk about the ego element. Like, what does it mean sure. to be man as an yeah. ego identity? versus just the gross physical body, which is where we left off. And maybe in this regard, I don't know if you, I'm, you guys are like proper devotees, so you probably don't keep up with this stuff, but um, recently one, one actress, now actor named, okay, I don't know how to say it even, but his, <laughs> his, his name is Elliot Page. Yeah. Previously he was Ellen Page and she previously was a very, well, I don't know if she was a popular actress, but I know I've seen some of the roles that she's everyone's seen her. Her role is always the same in every movie. I'm just that's my opinion. That's so that's was that the one that was in Juno? Was that Juno? Yeah, Juno, one in Juno. So she's, oh no. Don't say it like that. <laughs> she... Be careful, bro. That's toxic. That's toxic masculinity. <laughs> listen, so anyway, was... I'm not she... I'm personally listen, okay, I'm, not okay, making, okay. I'm not making fun of this whatsoever. Like I have transgender friends. I lived in the ashram with a transgender male for over a year, and none of us knew that he was transgender. He was just one of the boys, just like the rest of us, which means, again, we thought of him as man because he had the male body, as far as we understood. And he certainly had the male identity that caused him to do the transition. That's what transgender means, transitioning kind of from one gender to another. So... Although technically speaking, biologically speaking, my friend I'm talking about now had the female body, he had the male ego or identity as far as he would relate it to the world. And that caused him to actually transition on a physical level so that he would appear as a man. And he did. And we accept him as a man. He was just one of the bros. We lived with him. He's one of the bros. Great friend, even to this day, we are we're good friends. So Ellen Page is another example of this. Elliot Page now, I don't <laughs> misgender anything, but he, you know, she he came out as um, Elliot Page, and it's been a, a journey for him, et cetera, et cetera. So my question is related to this: We're fundamentally talking about man in terms of the gross physical body, but then there's the ego element where identity is, which is the locus for identity. 
And it seems, especially nowadays, we're getting a lot more information about it. You can have the gross body, but have the identity that's opposite the gross body. And so I'm asking a question about how this term man plays into the ego, because it's a little bit apart from the physical body in this particular sense. I don't I, know if that even made it clear. I, I just, no, it makes, it makes sense. It's just a, it's challenging. It's a difficult question. <laughs> the, when I think about my, I can only speak from my own experience here that, you know, say five, certainly 15 years ago, I had a kind of archetypal idea of man and I was trying to live into that. And now my own conception is much more fluid based on what I see the, the, atmosphere around me requiring for a healthy interaction for all the people involved. So I think in this postmodern context, the, the proactive approach of seeing the situation and then offering into it what is going to support the best thing that could be going on, given the individuals present and their various conceptions, is the only safe way to be. Whereas if I'm like, I'm going to be a man, and I'm therefore like a square peg trying to force myself into a round hole somewhere. It creates a lot of awkwardness. Mm. And toxicity, maybe we, we could say that insistence that I'm, I'm the man and therefore it has to be this way, uh, regardless of circumstance, regardless of others' experience. <clears throat> well, that just sounds like you're a good person. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of you to say. But I, I guess that's what I'm saying is to be a, a good person today is much more of a concern than being a good man or a good woman in a kind of archetypal sense. And I, I find that whether we can say objectively or philosophically, if that's good or bad, I find on the ground, like rubber meeting the road, that's what I have to do to, to like go to sleep at night without feeling bad about myself. Mm. Okay, nice. I have a follow up for that. But yeah, Harry Vilas. Well, I think that's definitely a definitely a distinction one can see between the uh, it is possible to have a subtle body that has more masculine or feminine traits even if one is in a gross body of either one it's definitely clear and we see it even astrologically you can see for example there are masculine planets male planets and then for example in a specific individual's chart that um, the female the feminine planets can for example all be concentrated in what can be considered the external aspects of the physical body and the external identity and then the internal the, the planets that are dominating the internal world can be heavily masculinely influenced so even there it's like you can even astrologically you can see this uh, difference of gender playing out in these different roles um i think when uh, as we start discussing this one thing to just keep in mind is that the reason why um, man masculine and feminine gender has been um, is now in one sense becoming more irre irrelevant uh, to a certain extent is because it's becoming it's not so much connected anymore to ch to get to raising children to a certain extent why is that this also is due to the influence of technology like in the past if you wanted to have sex you will have children it's like you know that's what happens but now by by birth by birth control you don't have to have children anymore you know and the same thing happens with if you wanted to have now you can even technologically you can have children in all kinds of different ways so it's the technology is a thing that is basically leveled out it's made certain things irrelevant so when we look at ancient society which is where more of, when we speak about 
traditional masculine archetypes where does that come from it comes from comes from older societies older social understandings of what it meant to be male we inherited these things we didn't just create them we, we got them sort of inherited them from mm. whatever whatever your background is and but these things were coming from a time in which the distinction between the genders were very strong because also of biological reasons not just cultural reasons like for example the fact that women can have career nowadays it's not just because somehow they are allowed now to have a career no like before there was birth control or the ability to to deal scientifically and hygienically with the, the fact that you're going to menstruate it was very difficult to have a career because it means imagine like now a woman can decide okay for the next 10 years i'm not going to have children so therefore she can enter into a career knowing that in the 10, 10 years she will be safe or she, she mm -hmm. decides she wants to have a career so i'm saying technology is the thing that changed also a massive about the, the, and that we're now only dealing with it so i think that as david marava said in one sense inevitably um, I think even for us who are now, in one sense, we have a foot in the Vedic culture, which is very traditional, we inherited certain traditional ideas, but at the same time, we're seeing that the reality is that the world, the gross world, has become transformed by the world technology, and it becomes clear that we have to be a bit more, we have to give space for, in, for the individual understanding of identity. Otherwise, it's just not, it, because we just have to adapt to the reality which we're living in. And it is now a time where the individual has much more scope to sort of accept well, say, a customized kind of uh, role and responsibility within society. And we have to then, I think it's important, but before going for the individual customized approach, we need at least to have an understanding of the principles. There are certain kind of principles, and I think that's when we can get to a, a beneficial discussion for people. You know? Before you do your customization process, understand that there are still certain principles that are governing how a successful life is supposed to develop and in that sense we can strike a balance between being accommodating but at the same time not being um i could say irresponsible in thinking that you can actually just do whatever the hell you want to and that there will be no consequences because that also doesn't actually work nice i would like to come back to that what could you say that would be a beneficial discussion if we could identify what are the general principles that sort of form the boundaries that would be super important to identify. But before we do that, I wanted to get in, just maybe as a transition point, we have, is it Jen Hammerberg? Jen Hammerberg. Sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong, but there's a question here or kind of a comment question. If I may add my opinion to the questions, personal identity and physical bodies are independent from each other. Right. So at that point we are also making. People make the mistake of identifying with concepts and ideas that are fluid. Our own consciousness changes every day, let alone from one body to another. Mm. Yeah, so I guess that kind of relates to what Hari Vilas, you guys want to comment no, no, on that? I didn't say that. I definitely no, no, you didn't that. say that. What I was going to say is that it relates to the idea. It sure. relates to the idea of needing to have boundaries. Otherwise, it becomes like this. Sure. Well, firstly, it's not independent. Yeah. It's not. It's not completely constrained. That's a fact. Like your your your, your physical body is not the, the 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 ultimate thing that will basically determine your whole identity. That is clear. But it is not right. completely independent. Secondly, right. consciousness is fluid. That is a fact. Certain ideas are fluid. But at the same time, you will inhabit a masculine or feminine body for the, for your whole life. So in one sense, it's just like yes, your consciousness is fluid. It is changing. But exactly, that's what I mean. Certain things don't change until right. you die and take a new body. So that's right. to be taken into consideration that yes, <clears throat> there is some fluidity 
And personal identity shouldn't be the only thing that, consider, that determines your identity, but it's still, we have to ask the question, how big is it? And that's a question, that's a question of, of quantity. And that, but that's an important question because to think that yes. we're completely independent, if you, you see the problem is, if you think you're completely independent of something, but you aren't, then you're in trouble because then you're not, then you're not going to accommodate for the reality that you are not right. it, you know? So that has to be understood. Right. Mm. I feel like, mm. and I, I could be mistaken because I haven't like studied this deeply, but within postmodern thinking and the tendency for overemphasizing subjectivity, personal subjectivity and deconstructing of reality, I think at the, at the fundamental defect of that way of thinking is that it doesn't take into account the gross physical body mm. and the limitations that having a body actually puts on you. Like it just kind of discounts that point which is of like a huge factor yeah. you know, the body is a huge like we don't normally tend to think of it because of our identity with it but the body is actually an imposition you know i want to fly i can't fly i i've been trying to gain weight for the last five to ten years you know and i try to eat eat more and eat more and i can't because there's an actual physical limitation to the the body that i have right now well I'm maybe a limitation that. for you <laughs> for some people that would be a superpower <laughs> so right so my point is that it's an imposition or if you want to you know I, i'm thinking about um eating sleeping many and defending you have to do those things it's an imposition and you can't say i will not do so for the most part that you know one of them you can you know has a little bit of flexibility well for the most part this is an imposition so i feel like the problem with a lot of postmodern thinking and as children of the postmodern era are thinking is just what you just said, Harvey Last, that we don't appreciate the degree of imposition on our lives and it's sort of a sort of inability to just reconcile ourselves to reality, like learning just to accept, like, okay, this is the reality that I got. And then I have to deal with that that particular thing. I think that's a general yeah. fault experience of yeah. and and also like unless you pointed out the imposition, because see ultimately it's a burden. It's like <laughs> whether you're masculine or feminine it's a burden it's like a, the burden of masculinity or the burden of femininity it's like it means responsibility and constraint you know mm -hmm. and therefore people people want to rebel against it but but whatever you want to be it will constrain you any identity that you choose it's, it's a constraining identity so right. so we have to understand that it will there will be some bitter with the sweet you know it mm -hmm. will be inevitable and therefore one has to go into it with a little bit of a sober understanding that uh, you know, yes, I am constrained by certain things. So let me let me see what are my constraints, and then from there I figure out what is my freedoms. Uh, um, and, and yeah, like you were saying, it's it's imposition. It's not going to be all mm. fun. It's not like you know, mm. whether whichever one you want to choose, whichever. And even if you have a like, you, it would be interesting to speak with someone who is transgender and to have their experience of transgendering into another gender, and then seeing again experiencing that wow. Here again, I'll be constrained. Like now, I will. I've lost certain. I've you know, I've certain experiences. One now, I'm another, and I, there will be the same thing. Certain privileges, certain uh, cert, certain constraints. It's just inevitable that that's how it works. Yeah, very nice. Um, I have another phase of the conversation, but I wanted to take out some of these other questions real quick. Maybe um, it looks like Ujola has one. Maybe you can read it, Karuna. But I can't. What is the thing here? It's sure. Chill. Yeah. <laughs> Just a sec. Okay, I've got it. Okay, so so Ujval says um, he was saying, I'm wondering if the ahankar is playing such a strong role in the identity per se. 
is it such a strong influence here? Or is it just that the ahankar, now for those that don't know, ahankar means false ego, false identification with a particular identity, whatever that may be. Or is it just that the ahankar is a neutral kind of lens that fits or allows one to identify with the physical body? It seems to me that the behaviors and Hmm, sorry, spelling error. And as such, sexuality would be a little lower on the chain, i.e. intellectual activity carried out on the basis of vritis in the mind and the karmic samskars that shape the intellect and mind. Maybe too technical, <laughs> hmm, but I'm genuinely curious. <laughs> Everyone is like... <laughs> I, I couldn't, I, I, I kind of lost the, the last part. The first part I hear yeah. really what he's implying, which is that the at the level of false egos, false egos is simpler even than the distinction of male and female. Like you don't have a male false ego or a female false ego at its most mm -hmm. basic expression. Right. It's an extra layer somewhere down the chain of identification. Mm. Right, which is kind of I feel yeah. like that was the point we were kind of driving on. It has this ability to be broken down and reconstructed or expanded and contracted. I was using different language around that. And so it just, it, it is the element that is responsible for identity in a particular way and is largely linked to the girl's physical body. But in the human life form, it, it becomes a little bit playful <laughs> because in the human life form, the, the mental capacities and the human species are vastly superior than other species. And so the psyche or antakarna, whatever word you wanna use, the inner, the inner instrument composed of ego and intellect and mind gets a little complicated in the human life form. And thus it, these sorts of conversations have to take place. I don't think any dare are gonna be having any conversations about, you know, what does it mean to be a dare? It doesn't happen. They don't have the complexities of a human psyche and the human psyche it gets a little bit more complicated um but yeah i also that point i'm getting the ego is just like an element it's kind of neutral responsible mm -hmm. for it and then the karma and some scars do, kind of do the rest of the work there hmm. it's like the the, the more um, the more gross the consciousness becomes the more constraining the gender is you know like mm -hmm. for example a male deal and, and a female deer they're going to be gra greatly determined according to their actual physical gross form will determine a lot of their identity but the more elevated you become or even the more intellectual you become you see then then the the uh, constraints of the physical form become less apparent and and uh, we see that even in general also you see the discussion even something like transgenderism it only it, it to, a, to a certain extent it only becomes um, so apparent in a highly educated society in which there is a lot of time and freedom and sort of mental space to sort of mm. start to dealing with these things. But in a, say in a, in a heavily impoverished society where people are just really working and to do it, it's like, it doesn't, there's just not so much, there's not so much freedom even intellectually and mentally to explore these ideas, to work with it. So it is clear that the more gross you become, the more constraining gender is and the more educated mm. at least it becomes more, it's not so, it doesn't take hold of one so much. And even in our society, we see that we have a whole culture of people who are celibate renunciates, people who, have, who are not even dealing with mundane, they're not even constrained, they're not even working on the platform of, 
of 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 mundane uh, masculine and feminine because they're just completely clocked out of that whole game and what are they what are they are they male or female to a certain extent they just they're not, they're not they just exactly they're just like they're beyond it they're not really moved by that those things so there is definitely gender can definitely be transcended uh, and it is a fact um, but it is not yeah it's not so easy that's just the one thing that you've understood it's not so easy just to 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 turn transcend gender or to um, to think one cannot just um, yeah, it's not such a simple thing because for most of us, the gross form will, especially, you will see what happens, especially in times of stress, then the influence of the gross physical form becomes more apparent because then, then you go back to a more primal, primal situation and then you just more are going to act like an animal. And it is definitely towards the, on that animal level where the female and the male distinction will become more, more clearer. So in times of stress, it happens. But when everything is happy and peaceful, then sort of you can play around a little bit more. I, I love the point. And I, I think this, it's a sad irony of the way our community as, as the devotional society, Krishna Bhaktas, approaches these questions. Uh, we kind of um, dismiss the, the element of truth that's there in this gender fluidity conversation and, and same with homosexuality and all the other kind of things that we reject on um, religious propriety, uh, there's a, an underlying element of truth, the relative experience of the material energy yeah. and it doesn't have any absolute value. And therefore to dismiss it is in one sense healthy, but the, the challenge is that most people are relativizing so that they can enjoy their senses more freely, right? It yeah, opens right. more opportunities on the buffet of sense gratification. Therefore, let me tear down those structures which right. seem in a way of me feeling good when I want to feel good. And uh, in, in our our context, what, what is value about, about those limits is, to your point, with less stuff to focus on, you get to pay attention to what really matters, which we say is our relationship with divinity, Krishna, learning to become a servant of that reality. Beautiful. Um, this is actually a great transition point, I think, for what I'm coming up with now is I think there's this thing called the paradox of choice. And I'm probably going to butcher this thing. But basically, when you have too many choices, you become you actually become better. Paralyzed. Paralyzed is a better word. And um, my personal experience of this is as a kid, I love cereal. I'm a classic American guy. I like cereal. And being taken to the grocery store and going in the cereal aisle was so paralyzing because there were so many choices and my mom only allowed me to get one box. <laughs> so it was like, I was always like, you know, wrestling between Golden Grams and Cinnamon Toast Crunch and, and Lucky Charms. Like, which one did I want? And having so many choices, you actually become paralyzed. So in a very sort of similar way, I don't know if this is the, the perfect correlation, but in a very similar way, with the total freedom to sort of formulate your identity according to how you see fit, then it appears to me, at least, and I could be wrong, it appears to me that the generation of children that are part of the postmodern era ourselves, we are utterly bewildered. <laughs> we are utterly, and I had this realization about a year and a half ago when I was walking in the streets of New York and kind of, I was probably fault finding to be real. Um, because I need a little bit of um, boost for my own ego. So I, did, I just started fault finding. <laughs> and I remember walking in the city, and I was like, I was kind of comparing the New York environment to like the old religious world that I hear about in the, sh in the scripture. And I was thinking, you know, 
in exchange for the freedom that we have now, we get to be bewildered because you get to get to be 30, 40, 50 years old, and you still don't have a clear sense of who you are. Will's proclaiming that you're looking for yourself this whole time. It's taking you 50 years and you still don't have a clear sense. And whereas in the old world, you had a lot less social freedoms, but you had a utter clarity about like kind of who you were in a conventional sense and what you were supposed to do. And that was very useful, especially if you were trying to become spiritual at some point in your life, because that part was taken care of. And now I can put my energy into the spiritual development. And it seems to me as practitioners of yoga, bhakti, Vedanta, whatever you want to call it, uh, because that part isn't figured out like the ego part, the conventional ego part isn't figured out in a healthy way. We start trying to like build our egos within our spiritual communities. So we want to be the next guru, the next sannyasi. Like I wanted to be a guru sannyasi because like everyone bows down and you get to speak. Everyone listens to you and you get to play the Mahaprasadam first. And you that can was, choose what you eat. <laughs> so because I didn't have a healthy sense of my own identity because I had the utter freedom to build my identity however I want. I was like actually paralyzed in my conventional life. And then I tried to build it with the building blocks of this, the thing in the spiritual community, which was not supposed to be for that whatsoever. It's supposed to be about going beyond all these things. And so I guess my question is around this paradox of choice. Like um, Harvey Bilash, you spoke about like having healthy boundaries, like understanding like, okay, the body is a constraint. There's a certain ego that's connected to that body. That's also a constraint. And I kind of have to understand the boundaries of that constraint so that I can work within it in a healthy way. And if so desired at a later point, transcend it. So how do we define those healthy constraints of being a man? Because frankly speaking, like David Madhava mentioned earlier, I, I'm pretty sure if I asked any guy in our community, devotional community or otherwise, what it means to be a man, they would be paralyzed in their ability to articulate it because of being products of the postmodern era also like, well, I don't know, it's about that, 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 and we'll say some speculation. So what are the healthy parameters? Like what are the constraints we need to understand in your view? And so that we can have a healthy embodied existence. Like I'm in the body and I have a very unhealthy embodied existence. So what is it, what are those constraints I need to understand so I can work within the body in a healthy way and move beyond it if I so desire at a later point? That's my question. Is well, it just, okay? Yeah, just one thing on the paradox of choice. Also, interestingly enough, it leads to bewilderment, and also just uh, as it's formulated, uh, the paradox of choice. It means that as societies have more choice, the one thing that exponentially increases is also regret. <laughs> because, yeah, it's a fact because once you make your right. decision, you you suffer much more regret because you have all these other alternatives, and you're thinking, God, did I miss out? And it's fascinating mm. because you can imagine even. <laughs> with, um, even people that do actually go to the point of having like a sex change operation, the statistics are also quite for regret. Because imagine that's also imagine that's a kind of regret that you get when you buy the wrong shoes and you're like, well, I should have chosen a different pair. Imagine like changing something as substantial as your gender. That means regret. The more you have options, the more there is. If you have no options, then there's nothing to regret. And what's fascinating is that some mm. of those powerful, powerful people in the world, like Steve Jobs, you would see he always wore exactly the same clothes. Mm. He always wore blue jeans and a white shirt and black shoes because he didn't want to waste time and what he should think about wearing. So it's interesting, like the more you limit your choices, you actually free up your consciousness 
because you don't mm. have to worry about bewilderment, you don't have to worry about regret. And that was interesting as Prabhupada, also at a certain point, there was someone who came to the temple, and once he came, and he came as a man, and another time he came as a woman. And then Prabhupada said, well, you should just choose. Prabhupada said, like, you should just make a choice, so that you can like, choose what you want to be, and then, go, and then you can actually start the business of living. Because that's a problem, it's like, you know, like once you know what your identity, the, the, people say, okay, the search, the pleasure is in the search. It's not, the pleasure is not in the search. <laughs> it's like, it's when you experience what you are, then you fulfill the responsibilities and then you can live, you know? So, mm. so same thing with, like same with marriage. You see marriage is also a traditional value, which means you choose one person and then, okay, done. And then you can just stop, stop thinking about other people now, stop considering all these options. Now, this is the person, just make peace with it and now actually get on with the business of life. Um, whereas if you every year you marry someone else, then your life never actually starts. So it's very mm -hmm. fascinating that, that that dynamic of just choosing and making the best of the situation. Nice observation. Good point. Yeah, well, I love that. And so, I would like to offer that as a consideration of, of one of those um, hallmarks of the masculine is mm. the, the willingness and capacity to choose and actually make a decision. And I've spoken, <laughs> I've spoken to many I'm women. Happy, but yeah, I've, I've spoken to many women about this, and they actually um, uh, look. They avoid situations where it's just women who are are going to be there in a kind of um, situation where they need to do something because they're worried that there's not going to be a point where they actually decide and move forward. There's going to be a lot of talking and a lot of testing the feelings and, and looking at angles and exploring, which is all has its place. But then if there's not the time where you say, okay, now something needs to be done, then we're missing out on the whole point. And so whether that comes from a woman, you know, physiologically a woman or physiologically a man, that presence of an executive, a decision maker, is essential in any functioning social organism, mm. family unit, government, business, etc. You need an executive, somebody who's going to take the decision. Yes. Wow. Well, it's, how... fun. It's, a, it's, a, it's a burden. There's a, there's a reason people don't want to be the guy to make the decision. People think I want power, but it's not fun because you're the guy who's going to take the hit. You know, and that's why people are like, I don't know, you do, I don't care. Like someone else can choose because I don't want to take the hit. Oh, they'll so, care if they don't have to give the hit. <laughs> that's when they yeah. care. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm laughing so hard because I, I don't even know if I should be bringing this. I was probably not perfectly appropriate, but I'll just say I've been in, I've been in organizations in our devotional communities. And I've been in meetings like, you know, the top meetings where they're having to make some strong decision. And I've just observed so many times no one wanted to make this decision. <laughs> and I'm just having just a good laugh. Like, yeah, that's a, a very kind of like male quality. Like, I'm going to make this. I'm going to put my foot down. And, and this is what we're going to do, whether you like it or not. And it's not fun because then you, get to, you have to take all the energy. But I still back to my question. How do we understand unhealthy embodied masculinity in a postmodern era which is kind of the question of the title of the show like how, do, how are we supposed to find that or discover that which is, is seems a little bit difficult from all that we've brought up now yeah i just i just quickly want to say that um <laughs> i i'm having such a great time being part of the audience here and i just want to say <laughs> that the audience <laughs> the audience is really appreciating, you know, Ujval says, uh, fantastic point. 
Nahusha is so true. Ujval says, wow, damn good stuff. Sadhu Harley says, the nectar be flowing, Prabhus. Kishore Gopal says, facts. You know, so everyone's really into it. So uh, we're doing good, guys. But I also want to say that another, like another, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Another, re- well, it is the Honest Man's podcast after all. Um, but yeah, another reason for my silence is that um, I'm doing some super uncomfortable introspection right now. And uh, I'm, I'm sort of like, I'm sort of like formulating and building up my personal testimony. So, so that will, that will come. Um, but yeah, let's get back to that. Let's get back to that most essential question, Jai Jagannath, if you could perhaps just very succinctly remind us of that, yeah, just where so that do, everyone's with us. Where am I supposed to look to find the principles of embodying a healthy masculinity? Because especially, I know this is not succinct, because I keep my ranting, I'm on rant mode right now. But part of being a part of the, the postmodern era, especially between 2010 and 2020, men have taken a lot of hit in general in terms of their social identity. It's not a very overall positive outlook. I don't know if you saw the other day, one of our friends, um, he also does a podcast. <laughs> I don't know if I'm dropping names, but he he shared the post where Parapod, the founder Chari of ISKCON, he's telling that the woman should serve her man, even if he's like grumpy old Mooney, you know, in the context of where it was coming. And he read that verse to his wife and his wife thought it was funny. Snapping. And she, huh? And she joked also. She said, I totally agree with this poor part. I do have a grumpy old. <laughs> so it was like kind of playful. Um, he shared it on his Facebook page. And within less than an hour, he had 135 comments on his page and you can go and see it. And I think it's gone up to at least 200 comments, at least upward of 200 comments. What I found interesting about a a lot of the comments there, particularly from women, but also from men in the comments thread was that the the general image of men was that irresponsible. That was kind of the sense that I got from a lot of the thread and that it kind of, the idea of like surrendering to your man or serving your man, for example, in a, in a marriage relationship was taken as a negative because it presupposed that the man was not going to be responsible or that he would ultimately be not be able to fulfill that function. And therefore that wasn't a good model for trying to establish a a relationship. So I am again brought back to this sort of demoralized feeling about being a man. I don't feel good to be a man. I grew up uh, largely worshiping heroin archetypes like if it was X-Men, I was into Storm or Phoenix Jean Grey. If it was, I like some other shit that I'm not going to even say because I'm a little too embarrassed to say it because it doesn't seem very manly. But in, in any case, my, my point is that the image of man, particularly I'm saying 2010, 2020, but in the postmodern era is rather demoralized. So I'm a man. I have a man's body. I have a man's ego largely, but I don't have a healthy sense of what it means to be a man. So where am I supposed to look to discover the principles of embodying a healthy male masculinity? I'm not going to look in the postmodern culture because I think it's demonic in principle. And I don't think they have that much to offer of value. So I'm supposed to go to the scriptures, but then I don't always get necessarily a clarity. So not, that's my question to you all. Where do I look to discover these sort of boundary lines and which I can work with then and help me to transcend in a healthy way and so on? 
I, mm. I personally have been so enlivened recently by my reading of the Mahabharata. Oh, yes. And, and I, I have been feeling so um, embarrassed to read about these men <laughs> and see how they, how they behave. Because yes, they kick ass on the battlefield and millions of people die at their hands, all that, fine. But they also are sitting there with Dropity, showering her with sweet words and begging her forgiveness for even the slightest discomfort that comes to her. Dropity is the wife of the heroines in this epic, the Mahabharat. They are ever diligent to make sure that their wife and anybody else in their field of concern, the Brahmanas, et cetera, et cetera, are feeling safe, protected for, and supported in who they want to be, supported in what they want to do. And if they're not able to do that, they feel deeply embarrassed, shamed, and like something's got to be different about what I'm doing because they're not feeling, you know, my my protection. So the the Mahabharat is one place where there's just such a, a living, fresh sense of possibility for men being vindicated as a useful thing in society. <laughs> to your point, Jai, I just want to, it's almost affirmation by negation that everybody ultimately points all the society's problems back to the behavior of men. It's almost an affirmation. I won't Absolutely. say an affirmation that it is men's fault, but it is also men's opportunity to take care of business in the real sense, as Hari Velasprabhu put it, power today is seen as an opportunity to enjoy. If I have power, it means I get to exploit a situation, exploit a people and enjoy the, the resources thereof. But real power means responsibility. Who do I have to take care of? And in what ways do I need to take care of them? If all of the men, women and whomever else that are really concerned with the world begin to conceive in this way, not what are my rights and privileges, but what are, who, how do I offer respect and what are my responsibilities within that context? That's when we'll see transformation. And that's the healthy element of masculinity. Mm. I saw you dropped a lot of jewels here. Just, I wanna amplify this affirmation by negation. I'm gonna say it in a way that's more agitating, obviously, cause it's just my personality, but I, I did shoot a video about half a year ago, maybe almost a year ago, where I made the point that Actually, if we want the society can only get better if men are improved. And it's kind of like an affirmation by negation. If it's man's fault that the world is in the situation that it is, which I think can be largely and easily demonstrated, that means it is only man that can fix it, no? In other words, you have to have the solution to the problem short of just wiping out all men. That's the other option, is to actually create the ideal man whatever that means but you have to create that sort of person if you were going to actually do good to society and i tend to think that largely almost all societal ills can be linked back to the demoralization of man as a proper contributor and his kind of like proper place place of dignity within the society um so i just want to amplify that point and I think it's probably another podcast because someone might object to that, but just affirmation by negation and then having proper stories where you have better male archetypes, like not Homer Simpson is not your archetype or like, I like, anyway, I like fantasy genre of movies, you know, growing up and so on. And like one of the popular ones is like vampires. And I always, I thought about this later as a devotee that like, I'm really rooting for the bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> in this movie or in this series. He's a guy who literally 
exist by exploiting and feeding off the blood of others. And I'm rooting for that fellow. And he suffers from a perpetual childhood, literally, because he's, you know, they're, they all become immortals when they're like teenagers. And so he's actually suffering from a perpetual childhood. And that's like my, the guy that I'm looking to for inspiration and encouragement and jokes. So I don't have healthy archetypes in order to, you know, embody a healthy male identity. So proper stories like Ma Barta. You got anything else for us, Hari Vilas? Same question. Um, well, I was thinking that really there's only one person, um, there's one, the most important person in understanding if you are being a proper male or not is your wife. <laughs> she is happy to a certain extent. Then, you know, then what, what really does matter? And therefore we see that for, I think also, or your, and that one, because that's where the male identity really becomes one that's important because it's in relationships where a lot of this stuff gets cracked out. And, mm. um, like if, for example, if you're, a, if you're a monk, there's no really need to get into the question of what does it mean to be a male to a large part because you have your monastic identity that is supposed to be guiding your ideals and, and then if you're properly fulfilling those ideals then you will be happy. So the male mm. question of masculine identity really comes out when you get married because then if you're not going to be a proper whatever you want to call it but that's when it's going to come out. It's that this other person will be unhappy and dissatisfied and the thing won't work. And therefore we see that to a large part then therefore um, it also does to a certain extent then become individualized because two people have to come together and you have to make an agreement. What does it mean? What is our mutual responsibilities and towards one another? And that is where the details of the masculine identity or large part gets worked out. And therefore it was also differ from to the specifics of it will differ, although there will be some generalities toward it. But it's true, masculine archetypes we have to it's very important, like Bharatamuni. Who, was, who wrote the Natya Shastra, he said, for example, that it is sinful to write drama in which an irreligious person is seen to um, attain success. Because uh, he says that, because it doesn't actually work like that. If you were really a vampire, imagine if you really loved all the blood of others. Imagine how tomastic you will be. Very difficult to get up in the morning. You'll be very aggressive. <laughs> your digestion will be shot. You will have acne. You know, your breath will stink. It won't be at all attractive. You know, you won't be, probably won't be a teenager. It's that, you know, so it's, it's a, creates a complete false sense of what these things mean. So it's very dangerous. So therefore, better to look. And also, I think people also have to understand to a large part, specifically the masculine identity, it's not as romantic as you think it is. It's like, you know, taking, basically it means, if you think about um, what, for a large part, what it means, it means you have to get a job and you have to support a family. And it just means going, working for six, seven hours and being very regulated with your duty and taking the hit and just you know, sacrificing your own, um, happiness to a large part to support others. That's what it really means. It's not like it's not like you know you have to be a superhero or be able to fly. It's actually something very basic and very very painful. But to a certain extent, the benefit that you get is also there. And uh, um, therefore, it's nice to look at more um, the traditional archetypes like Mahabharata, whatever. It's very nice. So religious people that are then at the same time fulfilling their duties and seeing that um, uh, it's definitely. I think, because uh, generally when we, when we start asking some of these questions, I always start to think, well, what does Krishna say in Bhagavad Gita? Because Bhagavad Gita is supposed to be the thing that sort of boils everything down in a simple platform. Like, for example, you know, astrology, I was trying to think, how important should I make astrology in my life? And I think, well, Krishna didn't really speak about astrology. He didn't say something about Saturn or Mars. So it, can, it means it can't be that important. It's just a supportive thing. So if you think about Bhagavad Gita, 
I think more important to understand that if you want to invest in the elevation of whatever, whether your ma masculine identity, feminine identity, monastic identity, whatever the thing is that you're trying to figure out, the more important characteristic is to understand that the three modes of nature, it will give you a determining factor about the levels of masculinity, the levels of femininity. Of a male in the, in the mode of ignorance will have certain characteristics, a mode of passion, certain characteristics, mm -hmm. in the mode of goodness. So I think once you bring in the, mode of, the modes of nature as a sort of an added category to, under, to look at that through the lens of these different things, then it becomes clear. Then you see, it means if I, the more I try to approach the dictates or the requirements of the mode of goodness, then my masculinity or my femininity, whatever, it will sort it out self in a more natural kind of way. Um, and, if you, and if you're going to be in the mode of passion or ignorance, then you know, it doesn't really matter because then we know they will either be suffering or ignorance, however, whatever your flavor of, of, of gender identity is. <clears throat> Excellent. I heard the, aside from the healthy stories and archetypes within those stories, I also heard the gunas as a really strong category thing to look at for understanding and categorizing healthy masculinity and also your relationships specifically with your wife, which is where this is going to really start to come out is another, but your relationships in general, not only to your wife, but to your society to help get a sense of a healthy embodied masculinity. All right. Um, <clears throat> Karuna Avatar, your, we're going to go for our final, maybe our final words or statements. This has been actually a super excellent conversation. I'm getting a lot out of it. Not only am I having a good time, but I'm getting a lot out of this conversation. I'm probably going to rehear it and take some notes. But you've been boiling up. Something's been boiling up inside, Karuna Avatar. Uh, a revelation <laughs> of sorts. Perhaps you want to share this now. My God. Um <laughs> Gentlemen, yeah, I, I've just, I've just been, yeah, I've, I've been, uh, I've been in awe all this time. All right, no, but what I'll say is that I, most of my, for most of my life, my relationships with, um, in my relationships with the opposite sex, with women, I have, I have generally felt quite manly. You know, I have generally felt that I'm naturally um, quite adept at encouraging, at offering guidance, at offering affection, at offering protection and a sense of certainty. Um, and just, you know, for all of you that, that don't know, I'm, I'm not married. I, I haven't taken that final step. So, of course, um, all these relationships that I'm speaking about are merely... Uh, friendships and familial relationships and uh, past romantic uh, relationships. So I, I have generally felt um, that, you know, manliness as kind of stereotypically underpinned by natural uh, sense of leadership um, has been there for me. But recently, I've I've had a I've had a very interesting uh, experience that. Actually, just last night, um, I, I was I was I was reflecting on quite extensively, and I was I was having a conversation with someone about it. Um, is that I, I recently made made a female friend who is just an incredibly powerful person. She's she's really just like a powerhouse on on all levels. She's she's incredibly grounded. 
She's like super, super intelligent and analytical and rational. Um, she's she's naturally very sort of like detached from the from the tidings of you know of the of the material world, the dualities of the material world. And there's just kind of like this 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 fixedness um, that I've never actually come across in in any other woman before. And I and I must be honest that in relationship to this particular person, I feel like a lady. I seriously feel <laughs> like like you know if hypothetically this person were to be my partner, then. I would be like the happiest housewife ever, ever. I would, I would like <laughs> totally be, I would be in my element as a lady of leisure. I'm telling you guys, I'm just going to cook and I'm going to create like a beautiful home environment. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to do that thing. and just feel like, so uh, in my element doing that relative to this person who's, 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 um, you know, who's, whose qualities whose masculine qualities as manifest in her perhaps ego identity and subtle body are just so, um, so powerful. Um, so it, it has certainly, you know, endowed me with a certain realization as to the, um, as to the fluidity of identific, like, like, let's say fluidity of like the extent of identification with a particular sort of um, objectively objective standards of what manhood or masculinity actually is. Um, and then just, just kind of like coming a little bit further into, into what we've just, you know, been discussing most recently is that, you know, Harvey Vilas, like you were, you were saying that, um, you know, that being a man actually just really means like buckling down, you know, taking that basic responsibility, uh, you know, voluntarily accepting a particular burden that you're willing to stick with. Right. That is what manhood is. And just last night I was in, in this particular conversation that I was having, I was expressing with 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 great feeling my super intense aversion at doing that, you know, at being for <laughs> decades of my life being bogged down and literally chained to some, you know, to, to some sort of situation like that. Um, because, because, because also, but now bringing it into, bringing it into the, this, this very, very universal affliction that I think almost all of us experience is that we just don't have good examples to look up to. We, we, we just don't have that. Like people that I know, um, you know, my, my, even like my, my own father, like in most ways, I would way rather be the opposite, you know, that that is that is my experience and you know looking at my looking at my uncles within my family you know they who are you know incredibly pious responsible determined like you know very typical men you could say in a stereotyped sense but just so much so much anxiety and so much like just um 
and I think that that's also what happens in the secular context of, you know, like accepting those uh, typical male responsibilities in a secular context, then it becomes especially burdensome because enjoyment is minimized. Enjoyment is actually just completely uh, <laughs> thrown by the wayside. Your sense gratification is is really like, it, <laughs> it becomes the lowest priority and that becomes a very, very distasteful situation. So, th so, so, what we really need to come to, or I feel where I really need to come to in order to ultimately fulfill my um, potential as a man is to have really good examples to look up to because Deva Madhava Prabhu, I have read Mahabharata twice and recently the second time round. And just like you, I've been so, so, so inspired by these great men, but at the same time, just intimidated as hell you know just being like oh my god like i could never embody this you know my just <laughs> just like you know some trashy product of the postmodern era and just how could i possibly ever <laughs> like live on that level of piety and 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 uh and male strength. So, so we need real examples and I'm going to be honest and I'm going to get all fuzzy. Like I usually do, you know, like Deva Marva, Harivalas, you guys happen to be some of my greatest um, heroes. You know, that's why ultimately I wanted to bring you onto this podcast because, <laughs> you know, you can, you can give us some sort of idea because I, I genuinely look up to both of you as really, really great men. Um, that I look to and and I think that you know also like we're we're all friends and in the context of the sanghas that the various sanghas that we've been having online over these uh, lockdown months this point has arisen so strongly that um, we need communities of brotherhood in which we're able to really bring us come together and and in which we're we're able to really um help each other figure it out you know because we it's it's hard like looking at the at the at the at the older generation especially you know in our movement there are many great examples of great men but still like in the context of having to figure out coming out of the secular world and 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 you know having a spiritual society in the context of the modern secular world and then having to reconcile certain vedic values and realities with just like the oh god just like the cesspool and slaughterhouse of the mind and soul that is this society that we find ourselves in you know our older generation has had to figure out so much along the way and they haven't actually you know many of them I think as a generation haven't exactly sociologically had the opportunity to settle into what it means to be a real man in the context of our spiritual society in this world to really like show us how it's done. You know, so, mm -hmm. so much we've, we, we've had to navigate through so much, so many misconceptions and, and fanaticism, but then on the other hand, also just being, overly liberal anyway so the point is just um it's just damn hard you know where do we look ultimately i i, I certainly i i feel completely uh intimidated because 
you know, I am an idealist and, and I do understand, like, let's say, orthodox masculinity quite well. And I really would like to live up to that. But God, what a thing. <laughs> you really unleashed on us there. It was like, it was like building up, building up. <laughs> uh, but the essence of what I got from that is, you know, Aside from your interesting story in the beginning, I feel more like a lady when I'm in relationship to this other lady who tends to embody what may seem to be like typical male qualities. One thing I was, I kind of thought of when you were making that part of your story is something that Harry Vilas alluded to also, particularly, I find it to be particularly true in a postmodern era trying to establish relationships is to like have a conversation with your would-be partner because the social contracts are going to be a lot different than the sort of social expectations that we hear about in the older world from the scriptures and so on. Um, and also I kind of got a strong element is that aside from having like the ideal archetypes, because one thing I, I've noticed about ideals is that they can, they can be like beacons giving guidance, but they can also really crush you inside and demoralize you. Um, especially like the ideal of Krishna Prema is like, and you like, I kind of like, you know, our first episode was like, I kind of like porn. Like, I don't know. If that's <laughs> and so the, the contrast of such a high ideal with such low conditionings from our social world can be very demoralizing. And I got a sense of that also hearing you, Karuna, which are like, it's like, wow, these guys from the Mahabharata, wow, wonderful. I'll never be able to do that. And unless I see like a living example in my community of someone who's like navigating this with skill and grace, uh, it becomes extremely difficult to, to yeah, embody a healthy masculinity. And I definitely can relate to that a lot. Didn't grow up with my own father. And um, yeah, I didn't really grow up with a lot of men. I did in the kind of very younger years of my life. My mom would send me to my uncles and so on, but they weren't like ideal dudes. They were like ghetto. <laughs> You know, and, and, and they were they were ghetto enough for me to know as a young kid, you're not a good example. That's, that's the next term we're gonna seek to define on this podcast. <laughs> like, are you ghetto? I mean, I ain't following that. And so again, you just feel like, yeah, I, I guess I didn't, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have the language at the time, but you feel really alienated from your own body, basically. And just because you just don't really know what that means, it's all negative. So I got a lot of sense of that. So just adding to what we've already said, just a need for like living examples to help one really come to terms with embracing a healthier sense of what it be, means to be a man in the postmodern era where technology has really jacked up in a sense, at least the way that I see it and hear it, jacked up social contracts and ways of, of dealing. I don't know if you guys heard anything else. Maybe some final comments or thoughts here in this regard. Oh, we can't hear you. Ooh. You're muted. Yeah, thank you. Nope, still can't hear you. I can jump in in the meantime. Yeah. The um, 
yeah the, the what I, what i just couldn't help but thinking about was this um plight that women are in actually and i'm very happy to say that we're gonna as a Bodica effort um we're gonna have our women's podcast up um this sunday it will be the, the debut and when we look at the so to try to protect a woman in today's day and age which is the kind of i love the point that without having that relationship of femininity in your life and masculinity also doesn't have much meaning or value. And so when the ladies themselves are so harassed and exploited, then their capacity to trust and allow that masculinity to develop in a healthy way for their partner, it, it's not there. Their bandwidth to be patient with you and to even you know help you see what they need from you it has been stolen away by their own bad choices and by the abuse uh, of society, you know, both things. And it, it creates such a, um, a short fuse in the situation and stuff falls apart very quickly. So that's one thing I wanted to say. And the second thing, I, I think somebody's echoing bouncy. Is that me? Anyway, um, is I just recently realized that this whole problem of, of toxic masculinity that we've had in our own devotional society, it's, it's kind of unfairly been put on our philosophy that somehow in the philosophy, uh, this is how you're supposed to treat women. This is how you're supposed to treat the world around you in general. And this like hating Maya means I love Krishna more kind of way. And the you mentioned a sitcom, The Simpsons. If you look at the 80s and 90s sitcoms, the TV shows that were popular, in America especially, the whole premise was that the, the husband and a wife are a burden to each other. Everyone loves Raymond as a, as a classic example, right? Husband, very stupid. Wife, very annoying. And then 22 minutes of laughter and hilarity ensues. And so this wife bad, husband bad culture is actually not something coming from the Bhagavatam or the Bhagavad Gita or the Krishna conscious society. It's a paradigm that has developed over the last 50 years after World War II, when everybody was given everything in their lap, literally all the sense gratification they could want and still they weren't happy. So then they had to turn back on each other and blame husband and wife as their two prime, you know, the prime relationship in their life. It's your fault that I'm miserable because as Hari Vilas Prabhu nicely pointed out, there is no higher value. There's no relationship with God anymore. There's no relationship with Krishna. And so it's your fault that I'm miserable. And so this wife bad, husband bad paradigm is not something unique to our devotee community. It's something that pervades the, basically the entire Western society. Now you see Xennials, Millennials, that, that generation, the pendulum is swinging the other side. And now we're coming back to this idea, still mundane, that I have my, uh, my life partner, we're soulmates, we're, I'm going to cherish you, I'm going to nurture you, I'm going to take care of your every whim and want, and that is my life, is to dedicate myself to your emotions. And so th that is also unhealthy for so many reasons and is creating its own problems. Mm. Nice. Yeah. Hari, some final words here? Can we hear you? No. Still not able to hear anything. Okay, I'll, I'll just take, I'll just take, oh, is Harry with us? Did we hear him? Did we just hear him? His audio is just not no. working. No. Oh, it's man. Not. 
Okay, Harry, maybe if you if you plug your headphones out and just uh, we can just see a close up of your face. <laughs> if you maybe just use your phone's mic, maybe that will work. Nah, no, still can't. Okay, anyway, I'll just I'll just read some comments. Harry's dad actually says. Um, as part of the older generation, I wonder if I would have been a different type of man if I had the opportunity to discuss or talk about this in my younger years. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I'm taking that as a compliment. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's really nice. He, he's one of our he's one of our biggest fans. I know him personally, and he's just like the most lovable, big bear of a caring dad that you could possibly imagine just look at his wonderful he must be with... harry look at harry v last amazing <laughs> yeah harry is testimony of of his dad's great fatherhood absolutely and then um harley makes an interesting comment saying when i took saffron cloth that means sorry, that I means have a... hey yeah uh when i took saffron cloth devon ritamaraj told me that proper male training is the means of saving the male gender and society at large because those yeah. who act prop because those who act properly as men set an example for okay. everyone else it shows it can be done just a confirmation on that good point of living examples <laughs> and Uchval says he's too <laughs> referring to Harvey Lars, he's too awesome. Destroyed the mic with truth. <laughs> yeah. Joe. Joe. I don't really have any finals. Wait, Harry? No, it's still that. Sorry. Oh, you yes! we can hear you. Yes, we can hear you. Okay, awesome. Okay, so just my final comments. One thing I think is very important to say. Oh, two things. The first is that there are actually many wonderful examples of people, but they're just not as um, showy as one would expect of modern archetypes. I know many devotees who are solid. They're solid guys. They're like really doing the thing. They're taking care of their family nicely. They're performing devotional service nicely. But you have to look for them because you can miss them because they just look like ordinary guys just doing their thing. But that's exactly what it is. It's just the ordinary guy doing the real thing. And... Uh, and the problem is that, that younger guys, they don't take shelter of them. They take shelter of guys, I mean, all due respect, who have, I mean, okay, my bad, I shouldn't go there. But in our, even in our modern uh, ISKCON culture, we also have a, a tendency of celebrity worship, where we worship devotees for apparent wonderful singing voices, whatever it is. I'm not saying these guys are not nice, but I'm saying that we miss out on a lot of good sangha because these guys, they just look ordinary. But if you have a guy who's been married for 30 years, and he's still chanting 16 rounds, and he's still following his regular principles, the guy's a hero. You know? and, uh, and you have to actually see that and ask that guy, what are you doing? What should I do? And then you will see, they will give you so many interesting tips for how to do it. So, um, but if you're just gonna worship um, celebrities or just have a superficial understanding of who you are trying to follow, then well, good luck. Um, the second point that I wanted to make is that whenever we discuss these supportive issues, masculinity, Varnashram, whatever it is, you know, anything that has to do with a temporary identity. The one thing you have to understand is that these identities are supportive. And they have, they have to be, they're standing on the basis of your understanding that you're a servant of Krishna and you're taking shelter of that identity as your primary identity. That informs and strengthens your ability to perform your secondary duties. 
And when you fail in the execution of your secondary duties, which is inevitable, then you have to take shelter of your primary duty because that's the one thing you can always take shelter of. So to understand that your, uh, your primary duty, your ability to execute your vows to your spiritual teacher and to perform your devotional service, they give you a certain kind of strength that allows you then to perform the duties of your external, um, of your external and supportive identities. And uh, so then it, it eases the pressure off, you know, because it's inevitable that you will fold. You're going to fold as a man who, who's, who doesn't, everybody folds, whatever it is that you're doing. And, uh, and when you fold, it's then you to take shelter again of, of the understanding that, yeah, now I have to chant Krishna's holy name and ask him to help me. Because as I said, at the end, it's all a burden. It's all, all these things are any material identity, it's a burden. But you have to carry that burden because you have to carry some, if you're not going to carry it, then you're really going to get crushed. So try to carry it by taking shelter of that ultimate identity. And then one day, if you're lucky, then, you know, you can actually become relieved from all these secondary identities and their requirements of you. But the easiest way to get relieved from an identity is to fulfill the obligations of that identity. That's the actual reality. And, uh, and that way it's a mix between, uh, you know, not taking up too much pressure of the ideal and understanding that at the same time, even if you completely fail, as a man or a woman, whatever it is, you can still take shelter of Krishna. You know, that, that primary identity takes precedence. Um, and that is Krishna is much more merciful than a wife or a husband. He's actually much more easy to like for us. Jai. <laughs> oh Jai. my god, Hari Vilas, so brilliant, so inspiring. Wow. Um, wow. I have nothing really to add to this. Um, yeah, I just that. I just want to say that we, we have some really good um yeah, people are really appreciating. Ujval says we all want to be a superstar. That is certainly true to some extent or or the other. Kishore Gopal says, awesome point, Harvey Lasprabhu. I've also realized this as well on the celebrity worship and the missing and missing out on the many unsung heroes. Uh Lorian says, mind blown. Hey? Kishore is on his way to becoming a celebrity, so hopefully he can be do both for us. <laughs> 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 says mind blown and Harley says so much intelligence. So yeah, I, I'm just I'm so grateful, Harry and Deva. Thank you so much for coming and joining us. It was um it was such a stellar conversation and certainly yeah. one that I think you know th this is the wonderful thing. We're having these conversations and we have people that are with us right now, but this will be recorded in cyberspace you know for a very long time to come and many people can still get the benefit so we're gradually building up a um yeah just a storehouse of of wisdom and discernment uh which which is for the benefit of society at large Jai. um i have to close out with the shout outs and all that but i did want to say that i wanted to amplify this last idea that harry vilas is making it's a point that he and I have talked about quite a bit about identity as a vehicle instead of identity as like who you actually are. Mm -hmm. And so in the Vedic concept, especially once we encounter in Vedanta, identity is a vehicle for a higher purpose. And I think largely the modern postmodern era world suffers because of their lack of sense of an objective, absolute good, a world out there to be achieved then they have to suffer with the notion that they are the vehicle. Hmm. And that's when things get really uh, terrible at the end of the day. They become horrible and, and burdensome. But you're relieved of that once you have an actual higher purpose to anchor 
the way that you relate to your sense of identity. And then with that anchor of your actual purpose, you, you can really start to get an intuitive, even an intuitive sense of how you need to adjust within that ego so it doesn't distract you from your actual purpose. Mm-hmm. And so the two work kind of harmoniously in that way. And I wanted to say that because um, it, it, it gets asked about this podcast and about our group. By the way, this is part of our an initiative, Satsanga, Sexual Sobriety and Transmutation Sangha, that Karuna Avatar and I, we kind of head up for helping guys come together and kind of embody a more healthy masculinity. And in our groups, we get this question, like, how is this really spiritual? Because it seems like a lot of discussion around the ego and around like conventional identity, around things that aren't directly spiritual or Krishna conscious, and, and you know. And so the purpose of this is because, and I, I like to say this a lot, you'll probably hear me say this a lot on this particular podcast. A lot of us are more human than we are practitioner. And because of not having all the guidance we should have been having to learn how to deal with our conventional identity in a healthy way. Whereas a lot of guys and girls, I suspect also struggle quite a bit. So we just kind of wanted to open up the conversation to that, not to de-emphasize the need for pursuing our higher purpose, but to learn how to deal with our conventional situation in a healthy way so we can pursue our higher purpose with skill, with grace, with confidence, um, with courage, free from doubt because I feel like a lot of us suffer from profound doubt because our conventional world is arresting our ability to feel confident about the pursuit of real purpose because we haven't really worked that shit out. So that's the purpose of that's the purpose of these sorts of conversations. I'm really happy to see the engagement with it and the participation. It's really encouraging. Um, we want to give a special thanks to Bishma Dave. He's in the background helping yes. and put everything up. We wouldn't be able to do this without him. Uh, unsung hero. <laughs> the unsung, another unsung hero. <laughs> He's done all the um, all the advertisement we do, the little logos. This is all his work. So we want a special thanks to Bishma. Um, for those of you who are interested to, again, hear these things or maybe share them with some friends, we're there on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and other major podcasting platforms so you can send it to them if you like. And um, special thanks to Hari Vilas and Dave Madhava Prabhu. You guys were super awesome today. It was a fantastic discussion. And um, look more to look more to having these sorts of discussions in the future. Thank you so much for being here. And always special thanks to you also, Karuna Avatar, for your enthusiasm and heartfelt. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Effusions. Like, yeah, heartfelt effusions. I wanted to add the for ladylike infusions, but that might have been toxic. So. <laughs> well, um, just for the record, you would have you would have been welcome, Jai. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fam. Haryom Tatsat. Yoranga. All right, later, boys. Hadi.